Hi, welcome to the New Story Church podcast. We hope that this week's message encourages you and brings you closer to Jesus. Chapter 1 today, I know some of you are getting there right now, but I'm going to read to you from Daniel 1.1 to set up this series for us. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. What happened? Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon came and took over Jerusalem. They came and took over the nation of Israel. They came and took over the people who were identified as God's people. This is what happened. So the title of today's message, if you're taking notes, is this, a handbook for exile. A handbook for exile. Because God's people, the nation of Israel, found themselves in a spot. They were now in Babylonian captivity. Some would say exile. And we are going to learn from them today what it means for us to respond from a way that would be the way that God wants us to respond from in a, in a moment and in a time that might feel like exile. If any of you just think about this for a moment. You've been in a place before and you know that you're supposed to be there, but you don't feel like you belong You know you're supposed to be in this place, but you don't feel like you belong. This has happened to me on many occasions. It actually frequently happens to me at formal events, like weddings, where I have to dress up and wear a suit and tie. I've gotten to the point, I don't even wear a tie anymore. I wear a t-shirt with a sport coat over it. Aaron taught me this and, and uh, then uh, dress pants with it. it. It looks nice enough. It, it gets, but I just, whenever I'm in a, a place like that, I just don't feel like I belong. I get up on a Saturday morning. I'm dog tired from a week of work. And then I have to go to a wedding and put on this suit and pretend that I'm a fancy person. I'm not a fancy person at all. And I just feel like I don't belong I really think that we should start just wearing sweatpants and t-shirts at weddings. People get all sweaty on the dance floor anyway. People spill food on themselves. I don't understand why we're bringing out our most expensive clothing just so that we can get it completely destroyed. But whenever I'm at a formal event of any type where I have to dress up like that, I'm like, what? This is... I just don't feel like I belong. I don't feel like I fit in. this, This isn't my style. It's also happened in regards to am I like who I am before. A couple years ago while I was in seminary, I was going to Sioux Falls Seminary and I'd have to go to these week-long intensives in South Dakota. We'd be on campus and uh, just ask him, I would text her sometimes. I'd be like, I I just don't feel like I belong here. I was really enjoying what I was learning, but all the other students, they all just seemed so much smarter than me. You know, I I knew I was supposed to be there. I, I was paying money to this institution, so I needed to go there and I was paying money for a hotel room. I paid money for a plane ticket. I needed to be there. But I just didn't feel like I belonged. People were talking about soteriology and pneumatology and all these eschatology, all these things. I was like, I, I don't, I, I, I can't keep up. I just can't keep up. Everyone just seems so much smarter than me. I, I just felt like I didn't belong. Have you been in this space before where you know you're supposed to be here? I know I'm supposed to be at weddings. I'm not a wedding crasher. I got an invite. I know, but I just don't feel like I belong. Have you been there before? This happened to me just last week. It was a wonderful Sunday afternoon. I typically spend my Sunday afternoons taking a nap after church, maybe watching the bills and falling asleep. And Kim said to me, hey, there's this new Taylor Swift video that everyone's watching and talking about. We should watch it. Now, Taylor Swift's not that bad, so I figured we could watch the video. What I didn't realize when I said, yes, I'm okay with us turning this video on in the middle of our household, in the middle of our living room, was that this video is 15 minutes long. Taylor's okay and everything, but she's not Michael Jackson. I don't know what she's thinking, putting out a 15-minute music video. 
And uh, I, I know some of you probably love this video. You've probably watched it more than once. And I was saying, I can't believe this is on in my house right now. Uh, about four minutes into it, I was like, the song's not bad, but I, I don't feel, I know I'm supposed to be at home right now. I'm supposed to be taking a nap and I'm about to fall asleep in the middle of this video because I do not feel like I belong here right now. My home does not feel like my own home anymore. And it, Kim didn't do anything wrong. I was like, sure, turn on the video. We can watch this. But I was like, this does not feel like my home. I don't know what this is on my television, but it's not anything that I enjoy. I don't know what I'm listening to. And, and you've been there before. You know I'm supposed to be here right now, but I don't feel like I belong. So many different ways that we've probably felt this before. And this is where Israel would have found themselves. They had walked away from God. They weren't walking in the ways that God had called them to. And so now they find themselves in Babylonian captivity. They find themselves in this space of exile. And they know that they're supposed to be there because they haven't been walking with God. And they knew that these would be the consequences for these actions, but they probably didn't feel like they belonged in another kingdom with a different value structure. What do you do when you find yourself in that space of, I know I'm supposed to be here, but I don't feel like I belong. And while we're in a different time now, this was in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, where God was dealing with nations, and he had this theocracy that he oversaw Israel, and this other nation overtook them, and things aren't like that anymore. God now works through his church, and the church exists all over the place. There are parallels, because I think sometimes, for those of us who are in the church, we feel like we are moving in one direction, and it feels like if maybe the prevailing authorities of our time are moving in a different direction, and it's like, we know where we're supposed to be here. God created us in his image. He asked us to be here at this point in time and place, and I know I'm supposed to be here. We know as the church that we're supposed to be but we don't always feel like we belong. So while this is a different situation in regards to theocracy and church and all that stuff, I believe principally speaking, there are some ideas and concepts that we can take from this story because we might not be in a political exile as Israel was, but sometimes we might feel like we're in a bit of a spiritual or a moral exile, moving in a different direction. And it's like, we know we're supposed to be here but we feel like we're alone. Some of you, you come to church and you feel so encouraged because there's all these people around you. You're like, yeah, we're, we're good, we're together. Then you, then you go to another setting where it's like, nobody seems to have the same values as you and you know you're supposed to be there, but you don't feel like you belong. So in looking at this handbook for exile today, I want us to talk about how do we respond when we're in a place that we know God has asked us to be, but we don't feel like we belong. The first thing I want to talk to you about today is this, that we learn from Daniel and his friends in this book, in chap- chapter one specifically, this is where we're going to be. I want to talk to you about identity in exile. I'm going to talk about identity in exile. Under this point, identity in exile, ask yourself this question, if you're taking notes, write this down. Who is informing you about who you are? Who is informing you about who you are? What story are you believing above all other stories? about yourself? Who is shaping your identity? What is the loudest voice in your life? Who has the most influence in your life and is shaping who you believe you are? I could go through a list of examples, but I'm sure that all of you are starting to get examples in your mind right now. This is who I listen to. This is who's shaping me. And sometimes people or ideas or concepts are shaping us and we don't even realize it. It's a subconscious thing, but you're taking in so much of that content or so much of what this person has to say that you're allowing who that person says you are or who that group says, who is informing who you are. This is what's so remarkable about Daniel and his friends. 
Because Daniel and his friends, they end up in Babylonian exile with their people, the nation of Israel. And immediately, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon says, hey, find me some Hebrew boys. Find me some young men. And we're going to put them into Babylonian training. Some people said this would have been almost a form of like Babylonian propaganda. We're going we're gonna to put them into our, our training. We're going to teach them to be like us. And essentially what they're trying to do is to strip these young men of their identity, of who they thought they were. And they put them into this training of this other system, this other society, this other way of, of seeing the world, this Babylonian propaganda group of, you're going you're gonna to come alongside us and we are going to take you into our ways. Some people say that it could have been almost like a brainwashing of sorts. And something happens when they're selected that for some of us, it may not be that big of a deal, but to them, this was a huge deal. Some of you, some of you here like really like your name. Some of you don't like your name at all. You, you would not mind if you had a different name, first name, last name. You're like, I would love a different name. But in this time period, names were a really big deal. Because for the, for the Israelites specifically, their name was typically attached to their family or their tribe or their lineage. But with Daniel and his friends, their name was also affiliated with the characteristic of who God was. And their names are changed once they're taken into this Babylonian group. Look at this in Daniel chapter 1, verse 7. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Give that up for just a moment. For those of you who, who grew up in this whole church thing, isn't it funny that we all identified Daniel through his Hebrew name? Not many of us learned about Belteshazzar, but uh, with Hananiah, we, we recognize those three based off of their Babylonian names. That's, that's what we were raised with, you know? The whole veggie tales, oh no, what we're going to do, that whole thing, you know? Like that's, we, we, were, we had the, the Hebrew, but it's just funny the way that worked. But here's why this is so important, is that the, he, the Hebrew name that each of them had actually spoke to an attribute of who their God was. They were in a monotheistic society in the Hebrew world. Now they're brought into this polytheistic society and each of the names that they were given actually spoke to an attribute of a different God in the Babylonian empire. It was as if the Babylonians were saying to them, hey, that identity that you once had, whether it was with your family, whether it was with your tribe, and above all else, with your God, that doesn't matter. In fact, we want you to forget about that. And in us establishing our dominance over you, we want to express to you that our gods overtook your God. And so you are going to now have a name that is affiliated with our gods. Who you thought you were does not matter at all in this kingdom. The God you thought you served, that doesn't matter at all. We are going to strip you of your identity. Not to mention, they were also put under an official, and his name's really hard to pronounce, so I'm not going to say it, but his name literally meant chief of the eunuchs. If you do not know what a eunuch is, you can ask your neighbor, or you can look it up on Google. Just don't click on images. I did not tell you to do that, okay? But they were brought under a guy who was, who was meant, who, whose name meant chief of the eunuchs. Which means that these young men, late teens, early 20s, were probably made eunuchs. That would have been a very painful process at this age. So they were, they were stripped of everything, of who they thought they were. And it's as if Babylon was saying to them, who you thought you were doesn't matter. And you thought you belonged to God, but we are now going to inform you about who we think you are. And we're going to try to get our identity to shape your identity. And this can happen in an exile feeling all the time where it seems as if another voice is getting a prevailing voice in your life over who God says that you are. 
And that can be a difficult thing to wrestle with. And this brings us back to the question, who is informing you about who you are? Who is informing you? What voice has the loudest voice in your life above all else? The way that we identify other humans sometimes actually goes into how we even identify ourselves. We love to find out one thing about another person, and then we'll identify them based off of that one attribute or accomplishment in their life. Whether it's job performance, whether it's whether it's, uh, whether it's sexuality, whether it's, um, whether it's st- some kind of relationship status, whether it's how many followers they have, whether it's the degrees that they have, whether maybe it's just something about them that annoyed you, so now that you always know them as the annoying person. You know, whatever it is, they're, they're, we love to find one thing about a person, identify them based off of that one attribute, then continue to feed our confirmation bias about who that person is. And what we do is we limit seeing the fullness of who God has called us to see other humans as. But when we begin to do that with others, we actually start to do it with ourselves as well. We start to identify ourselves based off of one attribute. Well, I'm this, I'm that. I'm the, I, I, you know, this is who I am. And we, we begin to limit the identity that God has even given us. And for many of us, what I've began to notice is that we love to identify ourselves based off of the lowest view that we have of ourselves. Or we love to identify ourselves based off of maybe the lowest moment in our lives. Or we love to identify ourselves based off of something that we just, we carry such shame and guilt with. Whatever it is, whether it's a low view of self or or whether it's a mistake you made or a sin that you were in, or whether you identify yourself based off of that. And people say this, I'm just, fill in the blank, I'm just, I'm just whatever. For, for me, I, I, I say this to myself, I'm just, I'm just not that smart. You know, I, I didn't do that well when I was in high school. I'm, I'm just not that smart. I say that to myself all the time. I'm just, I'm just not that smart. And I hear other people saying things like this. So, you know, maybe it's, a, you know, I'm just me. I'm just an addict. It's just who I am. I'm just an addict. Or uh, I, I'm, just, I'm just opinionated. That's why I can't control what I say. I'm just a really opinionated person. So I, I, I can't, I'm just, that's just who I am. I'm, I'm just, what, what is it? What is the I'm just that you were saying about? I'm just this. And you're allowing that story to have the loudest. You're allowing who, you're allowing that to shape your who. Here's the one that I hear the most. This is the one I hear all the time. I'm just anxious. I'm just an anxious person. I'm just anxious. I'm just anxious. I'm just anxious. I'm just anxious. It's who I am. And a lot of times people say that before they do something to justify that action. They say it afterwards because, you know, I'm just anxious. It's who I am. And while all of these characteristics that I'm talking about, the way we see others and see ourselves, while all these things can go into a personality and an identification of who a person is, it's not just who you are. Who told you that that's just who you are? Oh, I'm just opinionated. I'm just not, I'm just anxious. That's just who I am. Who told you that that's just who you are? Is that really just who you are? And we, and we allow our identity to become limited by that because we're believing in exile identity. We're believing in identity that is informing us because we're allowing that to inform us over what God says we are. Because this even happens in a religious sense as well. We say this, oh, you know, I can't do a lot. I, you know, I can't do that. I'm just, I'm just a sinner. 
I'm just a sinner. That's all I am. I'm just a sinner. And don't get me wrong. Every single one of us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So I'm not saying that people aren't sinners. Every single person is. And Christ died to pay for our sin. Every single one of us is. But is that really just who you are? Or in Christ, have you been adopted into the family of God, a kingdom citizen, an ambassador of Christ Jesus, who is his child, who is now a new creation that's been called to something greater and beyond whatever we could ever possibly think or imagine? Who gave you that name and why are you living under that name? That's not just who you are. That's not just who I am. In Christ Jesus, we become so much more than we could possibly imagine because of what he has done for us. And what I love about Daniel and his friends, they never forgot who they were. They knew that their God was the God who had delivered his people out of Egypt. They knew that their God was the God who was fighting for them. They knew that their God was the God who was full of steadfast love, compassion, and mercy, who's slow to anger. They knew who their God was and they didn't allow their exile identity to have authority over their kingdom identity. And some of us, you need to hear that today. Don't allow your exile identity to have authority over your kingdom identity. It might feel as if the exile identity is w- winning the day. This is what I, but, but above that, there's an authority that the kingdom has over that. And allow God to shape who you are. Allow God to be that loudest voice in your life. You want to know how you can fight your exile identity and know your kingdom identity over your exile identity? I'm about to give you the most Sunday school answer you've ever heard in your entire life. Spend some time with him. Spend some time in his word. Let him inform you about who he is and who you are in him. Spend some time in prayer. When was the last time any of us, include, we, we often ask ourselves this question. When was the last time you spent some time in silence and just said, Holy Spirit, speak to me? When was the last time you sought his voice and his presence? So many other things identifying us. That per- they're this, they're that. Oh, that person's this, that person's that. And how you see others is how you begin to see yourself as well. But what if we started seeing others as loved by God and recognize that we are also loved by God and that love is transformative? I'm just this, I'm just that. You're a kingdom citizen adopted into the family of God in Christ Jesus. And you have a kingdom identity that exists above your exile identity. Secondly, actions in exile. Actions in exile. If you're still wrestling with like, who do I believe that I am and who, who's informing me? And you're really, thinking, think about this. What you do is often a reflection of who you believe yourself to be. What you do is oftentimes a reflection of who or what is most informing you and has authority over and in your life. Your actions are an outworking of who you believe yourself to be. Your actions are an outworking of who has the strongest voice in your life. And so you, 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 you might be saying, I don't know, but, but actions matter. And this is why we know that Daniel and his friends did not bow to an exile identity over their kingdom identity because of what they did. You see, a situation comes up where uh, Daniel and his friends, they, they realize that they're in this Babylonian training, but they can't eat some of the food because it would defile them and would go against what God had asked them to eat. In, in the law. So they're like, oh, we got to do something about this. We got to speak up. So Daniel goes to the official who's over him. He says, hey, you know, we got to do a special diet because this food would defile us. We can't eat it. And the official's like, oh, no, that wouldn't, you know, I don't know about that because what if you go on your diet and then all of a sudden you get really tired and you're tired in the king's presence and the king's going to be mad at me because it'd be insulting to the king to be tired in his presence. You can't do that. 
It's like, oh man, what do we do? What do we do? So then they went to another guy and Daniel pleads his case as to why they should go on this diet. Look at this. He said, please test your servants for 10 days. I love this way he requests He says, please. Would you please, I'm just making a request. Please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. Daniel recognized that he was now in a value structure that didn't necessarily align with the values that he had or that God's people had. And so he makes a request. He's like, would you just give us 10 days to try this out? I love the approach of Daniel here. He doesn't go and say, I follow God and these are my religious rights. Listen to me, listen to me. And I'm gonna be so irritated if you don't listen to me. Some of us sometimes, our response to our value structure not aligning with those around us, our response looks more like Alex Jones than it does Jesus Christ. If you don't know who Alex is, don't look him up later, but he's absurd. Um, but that's, that's, our response looks more like that than it looks like Christ. And Daniel has such a gentle approach where he comes in and says, please, would you let us do, our values are not aligning here. And I know we're moving down a road, but I want to pause for just a moment. This is all going to come full circle, but it's a question that we need to ask ourselves. Am I more focused? I got this question from a pastor in Washington State, David Whiting. I love this question. He said, am I more focused on how I am being treated than how I am treating others? Am I more focused on how I am being treated than how I am treating others? Think about that. Because sometimes when I'm scrolling social media and I'm seeing how Christians are responding to certain things that are going on in the world, it seems as if we are much more concerned about how we are being treated than how we are treating others. And it's often hitting the panic button prematurely. (laughs) And if we're in a space where we feel like, hey, our values don't align, I don't know if I belong, are we starting to become more concerned in that moment about how we're being treated or how we're treating others? Daniel was more concerned about how he was treating others than how he was being treated. And I guarantee you this, it was no fun to be in Babylonian captivity. Trust me. And here's how I know that he was more concerned about how he was treating others than how he was being treated. Look at this in Daniel chapter one, verse 15. At the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. A few things that we see here. First of all, there will be times as the church, as those who follow God, when our values do not align with the prevailing values of the society that we're in. That will happen. And in those moments, I would say that we follow the model of Daniel and politely speak up and ask permission and do so in a Christ-like way. That we don't have, don't enact in rage and and this is, no, 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 no. We have to respond in a way that reflects Christ. So Daniel did. Christ hadn't even come yet. And Daniel's like walking in Christ-likeness. I love it. Secondly, what we see in this story is that this is now a testimony to the work of God in these young men's lives. Because... They cannot say, oh, the strength that we have and the reason that we're fatter and stronger than everyone else here is because of the diet that King Nebuchadnezzar gave us. Nope, the only testimony to their strength is now the power of God. So now they have a story to tell. Now they have a testimony. 
Then thirdly, I believe that Daniel and his friends knew that this diet would best equip them to serve others where they were at. They were in a wicked pagan kingdom, but they were more concerned about serving others than how they were being treated. And they knew that this diet would put them at at peak strength to serve others and to be a testimony to God's power around them. You see, when we're in this exile space where we're not sure, are we more concerned about how we're being treated or how we're treating others? And we should be, we should be the people, church, that we are strengthening ourselves in Christ in such a way that we are at peak strength to love others. We are at peak strength to serve others. We are at peak strength working as hard as we can, not sitting in a corner complaining, but looking to serve above all else. Even I don't know what this looks like. I don't understand why this is happening right now, but you know what? Yeah, values may not align, but we are still going to serve. We are still going to show Christ. We are still going to walk in the strength that he has given us because I know that our God brings a supernatural power in space is where human understanding says, I don't know how this is going to work right now. Actions in exile matter. And let's be more concerned about how we can serve, how we can walk in the strength of Christ and demonstrate who he is. Thirdly, increase in exile. This doesn't sound like it makes any sense at first because it doesn't. But how could increase possibly happen in exile? Because the exile space is the space where you feel like the walls are caving in. Exile space is the space where you're saying, oh my goodness, things are moving in this direction and I, I, I want things to go this way, but I, I could never possibly, it just seems like the boat cannot be turned. Exile space is that space where it seems as if all hope has been lost. But our God is the God who brings increase in exile. Let me show this to you. And he does it in the most unique ways. Look at this in Daniel 1.17. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Daniel, I was looking at this this past week. Daniel's one of my new favorite heroes in the scriptures. He was close to God and knew how to walk in the ways of God, but he also became an expert of the society that he was in. They knew every branch of literature and wisdom, and he knew how to understand the visions and dreams even of those that didn't even make sense within his own kingdom realm of understanding. This is what we talked about a couple weeks ago with that concept of ethno-hermeneutics, that we should be exegeting and interpreting the culture along with exegeting and interpreting scripture and seeing how can we best bring Christ to the place that we are in. Daniel's an expert at this. And it just, it's, it, on, on the surface level, this doesn't make any sense. These are just four everyday, ordinary boys. Why them in this, in this exile? Why them? It's just four everyday guys who are in this training, who've, who've seemingly lost everything, but now they're experts in everything and they're being elevated in the kingdom. Why them? And it's almost as if Paul was onto something years later when he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that God uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. God uses the things that don't make any sense to bring about his supernatural purposes in the world. I've even wrestled with this with New Story Church before because I've thought back like, God, you knew years ago that we wanted to start a church and you knew in 2018 that we were planning to start the church in 2020. Why 2020 when the world shut down, God? You knew that that was going to happen. Why did you let us choose that year? Why, God? And then what happened? In a 
time when the church, when it seemed like the world as a whole was shutting down, God continued to grow his church. And we've continued to meet new people and see lives change and see people experience a new story. It doesn't make any sense. This shouldn't have happened in a year like 2020 going into 2021. That shouldn't have happened, but it did. Why? Because God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And just as he did that with Daniel and his friends, he's done that with this church. He wants to do that in your life as well. It may not make any sense right now. You may not get it, but there's an identity that exists above your exile identity. And he's about to use the foolish things where everyone else sees foolishness, where everyone else sees something that doesn't make sense. He's about to use that to confound the wise because he's the God who used something as foolish as a cross, who used something as embarrassing as a cross, who used something that was as dehumanizing as a cross to bring about redemption and rescue and salvation for all of humanity. That's who God is. And that's what he does every single time he brings increase in the exile space. Amen. So look at, look at where this Daniel chapter one goes. The king talked with them and out of all of them, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Daniel, to Cyrus the king, that means Daniel stayed in this role for about 60 years. He was in exile, but with great influence. Increase in that for 60 years. The king recognized that the three of them were 10 times smarter than everybody else increase in exile. How did they end up being the ones who were recognized by the king as 10 times smarter than everybody else? How did they end up in this position of influence when this story started in Daniel chapter one with embarrassment and disgrace? How does that happen? I was thinking about this a lot. I have a statement. I'm, this is one of those statements I'm I'm like 80% sure that I'm right on this. I I was thinking about and praying about this. I I feel like the Holy Spirit gave me this to say, and I'm pretty sure I'm right. I I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure sure this is correct. And it's something that we need to consider. It's a statement. We should not be shocked when our values don't align with prevailing authorities, but we should be shocked when we rapidly lose influence. We should not be shocked when our values don't always align with prevailing authorities, doesn't happen all the time. Sometimes our values do align with prevailing. We shouldn't always be, you know, witch hunting to see who's, who's not going to align, who are we, you know, who's not going to align next. You know, sometimes I feel like we're like looking for that almost. We shouldn't be, but we should not be shocked. It happened to Daniel's friends. Hey, this diet, this does not align with, with what God has called us to do. So they spoke up and said something. And as we're going to go through this story, we'll see time. There's a couple more occasions where this happens. They have to speak up and say something. We should not be shocked when our, and it happens all throughout history for Christianity at times. There are times when our values do not align with the prevailing authorities, whether the prevailing authorities are governments or businesses or influencers, whatever you want to call them. We should not be shocked when that happens. But I would suggest that we try the approach of Daniel, not the approach of screaming and throwing a temper tantrum. And that's uh, it's never the right approach going to social media to show. It's not the right approach. It should be an approach that reflects who Christ is and reflects Christ's likeness. You see, what happens is, and the reason I put that statement up, is I think that a lot of us have taken the assumption 
that if our values don't align, then that means that we're also not going to have any influence. So as soon as values don't align, we act out in such a way that is basically influence self-sabotage. We just assume, oh, our values don't align, so I'm going to come off really aggressively. I'm going to come off and say something extreme. I'm going to do this because they'll never listen to what I have to say. And so our values don't align. And instead of handling it in a way that reflects Christ, in a way that reflects kindness and humility, we say it in a way that puts out an aggressive behavior. And then we don't have influence. And then we just claim self-martyrdom. Oh, I'm I'm following God, so nobody's listening to me. No. The Bible talks about sanctification, but not jerkification, okay? Like, that's that, you know, sanctification. We will be different. There will be something different. We will be set apart. But there's an essence that comes with that called the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians 5. And so not aligning with values does not mean an influence self-sabotage. In fact, when we don't align with values and we speak out in such a way that we influence self-sabotage, what we actually do is we are cutting ourselves off to the work of God in our lives. We are cutting ourselves off. We are cutting ourselves off for the miraculous to come into our lives and do something supernatural. See, if we were to handle it in such a way as Daniel did, what Daniel did is he asked permission. He took a step back and then that gave the space for the supernatural to get involved. That gave the space for God to get involved. Sometimes we just take out all the space. I'm going to say this and do this and then it just takes out all the space. But if we would just handle things in a Christ-like way, even in a moment of exile, whether it's spiritual or moral or value structures, hey, here, here's, how, here's, where, here's where we are. I'm not going to assume your answer to this, but here's how I feel about this. Here's how we feel. We're not going to assume your answer, but here's how we feel. We're just going to let God do the rest. We're going to let God figure it out. Let's stop committing influence self-sabotage because what I actually see in the scriptures time and time and time and time again is that even when values don't align, God always increases his people's influence. Sometimes it takes time. Sometimes it takes a process. Sometimes it's a little bit uncomfortable. But at the end of the day, God always increases his people's influence. But for that to happen, and once again, as I've talked about this before, influence does not always mean power or authority. Influence just means people are walking in the way of Jesus. I've said this a million times. People who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. I stole that quote from somewhere. I just can't remember where, but I stole that quote. It's something that we have to remember. Yes, we have to speak up. So how do we respond in exile? Know that your identity is in him above all else. And you have a kingdom identity that exists above and beyond and outside of your exile identity. Don't give into the identity of I'm just. Know that in him, you are a child of God in his kingdom. And you've been called to something in him. Know that our actions in exile matter. There will be times when we have to speak up and have uncomfortable conversations, but let's make sure that in those conversations we are reflecting the nature of Christ and who he is. And then increase in exile. When we speak up and say something, give him the space to move then. Give him the space to do something there. I love the story arc of Daniel chapter 1. It starts with God's people in a low moment. They're now in Babylonian exile. They're, 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 they're in a low moment. It starts with pain, but ends with these four Hebrew boys next to the king. It starts in pain and ends in progress. 
It starts with failure and ends in God's favor on their lives. It starts with a group of people, an entire nation, losing their identity in a spiritually traumatic moment, but then ending with four boys from that group now shaping the identity of the nation that they were taken captive in. That's the work of God. That's the miraculous at work. And we have to give him space to move, to take us from identity has been stolen to now he has given us the opportunity to shape identity from pain to progress, from failure to favor in him. It's almost as if Daniel chapter one is pointing to the most miraculous event that will ever happen. That in darkness, light always prevails. And out of death, we will always see resurrection.